This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about excavating and preserving dinosaur and plant fossils. Stay tuned. We take groups of volunteers and interns and other staff members out with us to do some really targeted field work, prospecting for new fossil localities, or oftentimes we'll return to an existing site year after year after year. As you can imagine, a very large dinosaur skeleton can take a lot of time to dig out of the ground. So we'll return to sites that are really fossil rich and that have more for us to recover. Again, we'll bring big crews out to the field with us to go collect these things. Today we are speaking with Natalie Toth, Chief Preparator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Natalie's job includes going out into the field with targeted field work and prospecting for new fossil localities, as well as preparing and stabilizing all the fossils so that they can be used for research and education at the museum. We do field work across the Rocky Mountain West. So we have a really rigorous field program that we run out of kind of the Northern Rocky region. So up in Montana and North Dakota. And then we've also done field work all the way down to the San Juan Basin in in New Mexico. And actually just this past May, I was fortunate to be able to go to Madagascar to go on a dig and help collect fossils from there as well, which was really interesting. What are some of the key areas that you've been working on uh, in the last few years? One of our biggest expeditions or one of my favorite places to work is actually out in kind of your area, your neck of the woods. So we have a really rigorous program that we run out of Southern Utah in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And down there, we're collecting fossils from the late Cretaceous. So these are rocks that are about 82 to 74 million years old. And we've worked out there for a number of years collecting pretty much the entire ecosystem from that time period. So things that are as small as a little tiny fish scale, all the way up to, you know, the big giant dinosaurs that were roaming across the landscape at the same time. And what I think is really cool about the Denver Museum in particular is that we do collect lots and lots of vertebrate fossils, but we have a really amazing paleobotanical collection as well. And so when we're out there, you know, we're also keeping our eyes peeled for beautiful leaf fossils and conifer fossils, even while we're extracting, you know, these giant dinosaur limb bones from the ground. Nice, nice. I mean, it must be crazy. I mean, just because uh, some of these areas, thinking of Utah particularly, but there's so many around the West that have so many different things to find and to preserve. I mean, how do you decide what what you're going to take back to the museum and what you're not? Yeah, that's a really great question. So all of the field work we do is really intentional, right? As much fun as it is to go walk around the desert and go exploring for really cool fossils. Yeah. <laughs> you know, our, our curators here at the museum, they come up with these really big research questions. And we go out to these targeted field areas where we know that there are sedimentary rocks of the appropriate age. And then from these rocks, we're able to prospect for fossil evidence that'll help them answer these big research questions. One of our curators at the museum, Dr. Tyler Leeson, he's really interested in the time period when the dinosaurs go extinct and then the recovery period thereafter. So the KPG boundary event is probably the most famous extinction event in all of Earth's history, right? (laughs) So when we go up to these places in like North Dakota and Montana, we're targeting rocks that are that exact age. And then we're able to go out and find these vertebrate fossils and plant fossils that can help us answer this question about what did the recovery look like after this giant rock slammed into the earth 65 and a half million years ago. 
That's cool. So what if you find something that's just amazing, but it's not really relative to your question? <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you have some like paleontologists on call that you say, hey, come, come check this out? Yes. What's really cool about paleontology is that it is a really small niche science field. And so there are folks that are experts in Cretaceous fossil fishes. And so we're able to reach out to these people where, you know, maybe we don't have an expert here at the Denver Museum that studies fossil fish, but we're able to collaborate and kind of connect with folks across the country and really even across the world to help us understand different aspects of these research questions that we have that we may not be specifically trained to target. You mentioned the KT boundary, the Cretaceous tertiary boundary extinction event is one of your sort of go-to questions when you go into the field. What are some of the others when you go out in the field you're trying to trying to answer? So another really exciting project, I mentioned this work down in Grand Staircase. And so yeah. that's part of a larger project called the Laramidia Project. Okay. And what's really cool about the rocks down in Southern Utah, um, I mean, there are many, many things. <laughs> that's <laughs> so from, true. Yes. <laughs> from, uh, you know, one of the research questions we're trying to answer is, I guess, trying to have a better understanding of what North America looked like during this time period when a giant sea wave split the North American continent into an Eastern and a Western subcontinent. And what's really cool is the rocks and grand staircase, they record this moment in time beautifully. And again, we're able to go out there and kind of sample the entire ecosystem where we're getting these really cool kind of niche groups of crocodiles and dinosaurs and turtles and all of these animals from across the landscape when North America looked very different than it does today. And then even within that research, that's really interesting is we're finding that there tend to be groups that are endemic to the southern region versus the northern region. So if you go up at the same moment in time to areas like Dinosaur Provincial Park, which is up in Canada, up in Alberta, and collect the same kind of suite of animals, they look similar in the sense that they're still a turtle, but they also look very different in the sense that it's a different type of turtle or a different type of dinosaur that has some kind of unique adaptation the latitude that it was living at during that time. You have your own team at the museum that comes comes with you and helps you excavate these bones uh, from the Denver Museum, or do you call in experts from around the West? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so I feel really fortunate. I work with an incredible team of staff, and I you know, I don't want to come across as kind of arrogant saying this, but I feel like our program here at the Denver Museum is one of the best field paleontology programs in the United States right now. We are kind of one of the last institutions doing this kind of big field work where we're taking crews of, you know, anywhere from kind of 15 to 30 people out in the field with us. And those crews are comprised by staff. And then we have a really amazing internship program where we're training kind of this next generation of field paleontologists. And then at any given moment in the earth sciences labs here at the museum and also in the field, we have over a hundred volunteers that work in our space. So we're able to call on these different folks for help when we go out and excavate these fossils and want to run a big field work operation to get giant dinosaur bones out of the ground. I can't do that all by myself. (laughs) We're really lucky to have a team of folks that are super gung-ho about, you know, working on that with us. Very neat. And the, the intern program you have, that do you recruit for that? Do people apply for it? Or how does that work? Yeah, so it's an application process. Different internship programs are tied to different grants or pots of money that we've applied to each year. We typically recruit 
college students or folks that are recently graduated from college, especially with our field internship program, it's meant to give them these kind of hands-on opportunities that you can't really get when you're in a traditional geology class. You know, you're not really learning how to go out and collect dinosaur bones when you're doing your sedimentology geology class. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's really intended to provide them some kind of experiential learning while they're working alongside us in the field. Nice. That's great. So you've, you've got a research question, you go to the field, you find key pieces of bone and or, you know, skeletal debris that's, that will help you answer these questions. So you got to get it from the field back to your museum. What is the process of excavating that from the ground? Yeah, so it can look a couple different ways. We have things that are just called like a surface collect, where it is if I were to just find like an isolated crocodile skull, you know, something the size of like a laptop computer, I'd be able to put some protective casing on it, which looks like plaster bandages, and you let those dry. It's similar to what you would use if you went to the doctor after you broke your arm, and they would apply some kind of bandage impregnated with plaster to your arm, let that set, and then it creates some type of casing around the fossil. You let that dry, and then you're able to extract the, you know, smallish fossil from the ground and kind of throw it in your field pack and hike it back to camp at the end of the day like easy peasy. However, when you're excavating a dinosaur quarry, what often happens is, you know, you have the leg bone connected to the hip bone connected to the yeah. rib cage, et cetera, et cetera. These blocks can end up being hundreds, if not thousands of pounds. Yeah. And so for field jackets of big bones, when we encase them in these big plaster bandages, we'll kind of decide, okay, is this something that we can carry out with a team of people or do we need to approach this in a different way? So usually if a fossil is a few hundred pounds or less, we can put it on a bodyboard or like a stretcher that you would use to hike somebody out of the backcountry. Yeah. And we'll strap it down with ratchet straps and we're able to kind of hike it back to camp or hike it out to a truck that we have parked at a nearby road. However, we've collected fossils that are, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 pounds. And if that's the case, we have to actually call in a helicopter. Just this past summer, when we were up in Montana, we collected a giant field jacket that weighed about 6,000 to 7,000 pounds. And we had to bring in a big kind of military sized helicopter to pick this thing up and plop it on a trailer that was parked nearby so we could drive it back to the museum. <laughs> folks maybe forget the scale of animals that used to live. (laughs) And so even things that are maybe not the most charismatic dinosaurs, like I feel like the kind of duckbill dinosaurs that folks, you know, don't always, you know, everybody's thinking about the meat eaters or triceratops with the big horns, but even these giant duckbill dinosaur skeletons, they can weigh thousands and thousands of pounds. So it really gives you a sense of appreciation for how big these things were walking around on the landscape. (laughs) So you find this, say, a duckbill leg or full skeleton or whatever, but but what if you already have one in your museum? You know, but this one's better in the field. I mean, how do you make those decisions? I think as with most science, we're always trying to build up a better sample size. Right. So even if I already have three leg bones from a duckbill dinosaur, if I collect four, five, or six, that allows me to start answering really cool questions about Are there differences in the way that this leg looks between different species of dinosaur? As I was mentioning earlier, the kind of differences between the northern and southern taxa that we have in Laramidia from this time period of about 75 million years ago, when we're able to kind of build out these bigger sample sizes and bigger data sets, we're then able to make really cool observations about different kind of trends and characteristics of fossils from 
you know, the same time period, which I think is really cool. Yeah. So if you have these multiple leg bones and maybe only one is on display, Hmm. do you have like a storage area where it's just study bones? So we call this our collection space. Um, We have an earth sciences collections and it's in the basement of the museum where it's protected from um, UV light and it's temperature and humidity controlled. Um, which isn't super important for dinosaur fossils. They're essentially just big rocks, but um, we do have fossils from digs from the ice age. So I don't, folks that maybe listening to this may remember in 2010, there was a huge discovery out in the Aspen snowmass area in Colorado. And they collected all of these ice age creatures, the giant mammoths and mastodons and giant sloths. And for these things that are kind of in this sub fossil condition, particularly like ivory that comes off of a mammoth uh, tusk, having things that are temperature controlled and humidity controlled is essential for maintaining the kind of structure and preservation quality of these specimens. But we have a collection space at the museum that holds all of the fossils, all of the, you know, fossil plants, fossil dinosaurs, even fossil seashells that we've collected um, since the museum has existed. Wow. And that's true across all the sciences at this museum. So we have a, you know, zoology collection, an entomology collection. We have um, artifacts from ancient peoples, so on and so forth. Yeah. And are they, I mean, is that kind of thing available to researchers in general? Yeah. If they want to come and see your duck bill leg collection, they can come and look at it. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's encouraged. This goes back to, to what you had mentioned earlier about how we, you know, even though we don't have folks at this museum that are necessarily experts on fossil fish, we encourage those folks from other institutions to come visit our collection yeah. of fossil fish so that they can then kind of move the science needle forward on the research that needs to happen with those. What do you have to do once these bones and fossils get back to your museum? You mentioned the UV light and a few other things, but what has to be done to make sure they are not degraded any further? Yeah, there's no kind of straight set path for the course that every fossil gets to take. You can have fossils collected from the same exact quarry, from the same site, and they'll behave worlds different from each other. And so each fossil project comes with its own kind of unique characteristics and We have to approach all of these from a unique perspective. So the first stop for all these fossils is into the fossil prep lab. And there we open up those big plaster field jackets and we decide, okay, does anything need to be glued together? Does it need to be stabilized using special chemicals? Do we need to fill in any cracks with any type of special like stabilization chemical? And then once a fossil is stable and essentially shelf ready, it can then go down to our collection space where it can be stored and taken care of and kind of integrated into our collections. And so that process looks like all of the data that we collected from this fossil in the field is then transcribed into our database. And that's, I feel like where, you know, the research can really you can take a deep dive in the research where you're able to type into the computer. I want to study the right first toe (laughs) of uh, ankylosaur dinosaur. And you can go into our database and see exactly how many of those digit ones we have in our collection and exactly where to find them and what time period they're from, where they were collected from, et cetera, et cetera. So it kind of reminds me of um, like a library for fossils. Yeah, that's a very powerful way to, to have that information disseminated. Field work, especially remote field work, is what gets me really excited about my job. You know, there's nothing that compares to 
being kind of off the grid out in the back country and you're surrounded by your colleagues who are as excited about each day-to-day's potential for discovery as you are, and then also being able to share those moments of discovery with interns and with volunteers and really just kind of disconnecting from everything else besides the purpose or the intention that you're out in the field for. And every day that we kind of wake up at camp, you know, where everything is collaborative from the moment that we wake up to the moment we go to sleep at night, we're making meals together, we're working in a quarry together, we're all trying to achieve the same common goal, which is to get these fossils out of the ground in a timely manner so that they can be used for research and studied back here at the museum. So it's something that makes me so happy and brings me so much joy as uh, field season every single year. <laughs> Do you have a project on the horizon that that you're about to embark on or? Um, yes. <laughs> um, so I feel like every year we kind of have our set suite of areas where we go and kind of collect more data to support different projects. But one of the things that we've been kind of working towards and pushing towards is expanding research projects into either new territories across the Rocky Mountains. And so you can imagine like the KT boundary, for example, while we've collected a pretty remarkable data set from the North Dakota, Montana area, you know, the KPG boundary can be observed not only in North America, but South America as well. And so we've been thinking a lot about what a future project on a different continent could look like. So I guess, um, you know, stay tuned to see how all of that (laughs) is cobbled together. Very cool. Well, Natalie, I I really appreciate you talking with Science Moab, and it's so interesting to hear how a preparator works in modern day fossil hunting. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. It was great. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.